I can hear you. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yeah. Today on the podcast, we're bringing you excerpts of a live Zoomcast we did in mid-July. The audio sounds a little different, and a couple of times we had some serious technical difficulties. Overall, it was a great conversation, though, as it always is with our two resident podfessors, Vanderbilt professor Sae Nikpay and Harvard professor Bapu Jenna. They answered audience questions about the future of healthcare post-COVID and talked about what their kids are watching on Netflix. From the Annenberg Studio at the University of Pennsylvania, I'm Dan Gorenstein, and this is Tradeoffs. Welcome to tonight's event. This is this is a community affair tonight, everybody. Uh, kind of like community theater, but Zoomcast style. Um, Jeff has a question, um, Saye. And he's curious if you think that the pandemic is going to lead to more alternative payment models away from fee for service. And just in case uh, that's too jargony for people, uh, most providers get paid every time a person walks in the door for a service that's provided. And an alternative payment model is often uh, giving somebody a lump sum payment for a period of time. And then it's really up to the provider and the patient to kind of work together to live within that budget. Um, do you think we're going to see a rise of alternative payment models? So I think a lot of people are questioning the wisdom of a fee-for-service system, because when you stop doing stuff, to people, the revenue stops flowing in. It's been very difficult to move the needle on payment reform in the U.S. This may be such a catastrophic event that we actually propose something and do something different, whether that's global budgets or, um, you know, other mechanisms that basically prop up these hospitals and clinics so they're not so directly dependent on every CT they run and MRI they run and, you know, surgery they do. Talking about the business of healthcare, and now we see lots of hospitals and clinics sort of begging for bailouts. How do you think we will see this, these providers respond in this crisis? So hospitals are a pretty heterogeneous group. We've got some that are really financially strong. They have access to credit. They're members of a system. But then there's also some hospitals that are smaller, rural, uh, and they tend to operate on slim margins. So in Tennessee, where I just came from, some hospitals, when those elective procedures started to get uh, turned off, were saying they had two weeks cash to operate their hospital. One thing that may happen is that we may see those hospitals that are in a better financial position acquire some of the struggling hospitals. And the situation is actually even worse when you think about clinics like primary care, which operates on pretty slim margins. We're going to see a lot of clinics being acquired by hospitals as well. Here, we've got a question from Julie Stone. Based on the high likelihood of accelerated mergers and acquisitions within the health system space, how do we establish conditions to optimize value, quality, cost efficiency, balanced with the need for financial stability within the systems themselves? Very fair question, Julie. Very on point for uh, 
show called Trade-Offs. Thank you for that question. Bapu, can you start? I would say that one thing that the FTC could do is, and it's been discussed before, is set up conditions, essentially tying the proposed merger to some measurable quality improvement, then that would be a condition for the merger. Otherwise, uh, there would have to be a divestiture or a penalty or some form of, you know, penalty payment, something like that. But, you know, but if ultimately patients get better care, I think we would want to reward that. And if they don't and the prices just go up, that's something that we want to discourage. I totally agree with that. That's been an empty promise, this idea that you're going to deliver, you know, better, more integrated care just by merging. Um, I think that alternative payment models could potentially help with this as well, right? Because if hospitals operate under a budget, then there's a disincentive to, you know, uh, do more, charge more, because you have to efficiently use the resources that you have. We've got a couple of questions in a tab that I had not noticed. I apologize for that. Right around here, we lost Bapu to some technical difficulties. Uh, I can I can barely hear you. But we got him back just in time to answer a question on vaccine pricing. But if you ask a question, I can try to talk for like 10 seconds. And if it sounds horrible, just uh, wave your hand and I'll stop. Okay. I, I can't you, hear you, you all very well. You sound great. So the question, Bapu, is here. I'm going to put the question in. How do you think about pricing a COVID vaccine? So it's both affordable and has incentives for private industry. Let's suppose that we have a manufacturer develop a vaccine. We know it's incredibly valuable. But we say to the manufacturer, look, we know your vaccine's valuable, but we're not going to allow you to charge the value of it. You have to charge $500 or $400 for the vaccine. That might work initially, uh, and the government could do that. But what happens if that vaccine isn't actually perfect? What incentives and what signals does that send to the subsequent vaccine manufacturers who are thinking about ways to make the vaccine better? Now, if the vaccine is perfect at the outset— the government could do really whatever it wanted to do, and the price could be a lot lower than it otherwise would need to be to sustain that future innovation. I want to go back to this one question. I'm going to type it in. What can be done to increase COVID vaccine uptake when a vaccine arrives? People focus on the price of the vaccine. I, I mean, that's important, obviously, right? But I think what's actually more important isn't the price of the vaccine, but it's the what you might consider the non-financial costs of getting vaccinated. To put it differently, if we made the vaccine free, um, I think that there'd still be a lot of people who don't get vaccinated. And it could be because they're afraid of getting vaccinated. It could be that they think that there's a small chance of side effects and and they want to wait till the next vaccine comes out. I've actually heard that from some very educated um, people, and it's a reasonable concern. So there's, there's a lot of just non-financial barriers to getting vaccinated, and I think we need to think creatively about what solutions there would look like. It doesn't have to be the case that you have to go to your doctor to get this vaccine. It shouldn't be that way. And there's other things that you could do as well, but the, the big idea here is thinking creatively about reducing non-financial barriers to getting vaccinated.
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This is the recording from our July conversation with our favorite podfessors, Saya Nikpe of Vanderbilt and Harvard's Bapu Jenna, answering more audience questions, starting with a Medicaid question from John. The pandemic means lost revenue for states, which means many states are looking to cut Medicaid spending, which leads to people losing coverage and the same losses of revenue for providers you've already talked about. It seems like a no-brainer to bump up the federal share of Medicaid payments in times like this. Politically, though, this seems like a hot-button or controversial issue at the least. Question, is this kind of measure controversial among economists or just politicians? No, I don't think that that's controversial. And in fact, I think that it's good value because Medicaid tends to have very uh, low spending per beneficiary, low spending growth. And we know that states have to balance their budget every single year. And so if the federal government, which can run a deficit, doesn't do things to assist the states, then those states are going to have to potentially cut benefits, pay providers less, or if they want to maintain things where they are, they're going to be able to spend less on things like education, uh, other types of state programs that benefit those populations. And we did this policy during the Great Recession as well. The pandemic has been brutal. Uh, lots of people are, are hurting, as we talked about before. And uh, I think the, the question really is, in all these stormy skies, I'd like from each of you to share one bright spot that you've seen in the data or the evidence coming out of this epidemic. Saye, we want to start with you. Sure. I think that what we learned from the last recession was that failing to act quickly has really or did a lot of damage to the economy and also to vulnerable families, households that don't make a lot of money. And uh, I think that the response, the policy response has really been informed by the past. Policymakers really learned You have to act now. You have to do it fast. And what people are finding, what researchers are finding, is that that's tracing through to fewer families falling into poverty because of COVID-19. There's a question whether these economic policies will be continued throughout the duration of the pandemic. But I think people really learned the lesson from the last recession that you have to get relief to people quickly. How about you, Bapu? What's a bright spot? Yeah, I mean, I certainly I think we'd all agree that the bright spot is Zoom, uh, Zoom meetings. <laughs> no, um, I, I would say this. There's, there's, there's a few things. So one is hospitals and provider practices were afraid of transmission. And so 
we started moving towards telemedicine. I think some of those things are actually going to probably persist well after uh, the pandemic is is addressed because I think we'll learn something about what what actually needs to be done in person and what doesn't need to be done in person. Um, hopefully, uh, you know, hopefully a silver lining in all this. I guess I'd really like to hear from both of you one moment that is COVID related, related to this pandemic, that you think you'll hold on to for years and years. Bapu, can you start? I'll say that our daughter lost her uh, top two teeth during COVID-19, and she has a beautiful smile, and she runs around calling herself toothless, which apparently is a character in some uh, dragon show on Netflix. Uh, I would say, you know, family. Uh, It's... It's a gift and a curse. You spend a lot of time together. You know, obviously that that, that can be difficult. But uh, I think you know the relationship between my daughter and uh, son has changed a lot during this time, and I'm grateful for that. How about you, Sire? Oh, I love my husband. I knew that before, and I know it even more now. I have a feminist husband who does, you know, half of everything. Sometimes more than half, and gender equity in our household has been just a saving grace through this crazy time. Thanks so much to Saye Nikpay and Bapu Jenner for giving us their time and expertise, and to the folks at Lyceum for hosting. I can say that for me, Tradeoffs has been one of my big pandemic bright spots, getting to tell stories and to connect with all of you. The audience questions really made this event, and we'd like to do it more. So please let us know. What would you like to know about COVID-19, healthcare disparities, or any other policy-related topics? Send them to us on Twitter. We're at TradeoffsPod, or you can email us at info at tradeoffs.org. I'm Dan Gorenstein. This is Tradeoffs. For some, the coronavirus pandemic has highlighted the urgent need for Medicare for All. How can you possibly see what is happening right now and come to the conclusion that we shouldn't guarantee health care as a human right? But has it turned skeptics into believers? We get an in-depth look at the latest polling from the Kaiser Family Foundation to see if the pandemic has changed voters' opinions about the government's role in health care. Next time on Tradeoffs. If you enjoyed today's episode of Tradeoffs, keep in touch with us between episodes by signing up for our weekly newsletter at tradeoffs.org. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter at TradeoffsPod. And if you really want to help other people find us, give us a rating on Apple Podcast or whichever app you use. This week's episode was produced by intern Sabrina Ems, producers Ryan Levy and Vicki Stern, sound designer Andrew Perella, and editor Leslie Walker. The Tradeoffs theme song was composed by Ty Sitterman. Additional thanks to Zach Davis and Lyceum. Thanks also to our listeners who helped to support our work, including Alnetta Russell and Corinne Silverman. Tradeoffs is supported in part by the California Healthcare Foundation, Arnold Ventures, and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Additional support from the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics and the Center for Public Health Initiatives at the University of Pennsylvania. The views expressed in this episode are those of the individuals and not those of Tradeoffs staff, advisors, or funders.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.